Good evening, everyone. My name is Ian Roxanne. I'm a senior lecturer in law here at the LSE, working on taxation matters. This evening, our topic is the City of London and its tax haven empire. And we have two speakers with us who will each give a presentation. Uh, Nicholas Shackson has some slides which he will start with. Um, there will be some time for questions and answers towards the end, about 25 to, uh, sorry, 15 to 20 minutes after he's speaking. And uh, we hope to finish about a quarter to eight. Nicholas Shackson is a journalist and writer who started working on oil and politics in West Africa and has moved on through what he discovered in that process to look at the question of tax havens and their development. Uh, he also works extensively with the Tax Justice Network and has, as you may have gathered, recently written a book called Treasure Islands, Tax Havens and the Men Who Stole the World, which traces some of the history of, of tax havens and discusses their position in the world today. <coughs> Morris Glassman is a senior lecturer in political theory at London Metropolitan University. In the New Year's Honours list, he was made a Labour peer. He's also known for his work with London citizens and Alliance of Faith Institutions, universities, schools and trade unions involved in community projects. And he has uh, interesting ideas about the, the roles that communities ought to play. So our focus this evening is on tax havens. I'd like to ask Nicholas Jackson to begin. Thanks. So, good evening, everybody. Um, I've just, uh, before I came here, I, I spent a little bit of uh, time with the press office of the uh, City of London Corporation. Uh, I just went to see them to ask how, uh, what they thought about my book. Um, and I, I kind of felt like a naughty schoolboy going to see Headmaster. But I had, I had requested the interview, and they were extremely, they were very friendly in, in a slightly miffed kind of way. Um, so, I... <laughs> Um, but I, this, is, this is a talk about tax havens, but I, one of the most fundamental points about this is, is that I think is not widely understood is how important tax havens are to the City of London. Um, the, the, the connections are absolutely fundamental and they're fundamental of absolutely fundamental importance to the City of London. I remember when I was researching this book, uh, the London chapter... Oh, can we, have, uh, can we have the sound turn? You can't hear me at the back. Okay. The City of London uh, uh, chapter, I was researching it, and I collected an awful lot of material. It was one of the last chapters that I, that I wrote, and I, I had enough material ready to write a chapter, and, and somebody said I should speak to this guy, Morris Glassman. Uh, Glassman. And I remember the first five minutes, within five minutes of talking to Morris, I started feeling a little bit annoyed because I thought I've collected up all this material about the city and now I'm going to have to throw half of it away because this, this is really the most fascinating thing. And this is a story about the city 
that I think people in Britain, it's not really a secret, but it's something in pre people in Britain don't really know about and don't really understand, uh, and it's, it's incredibly important. And I want to talk about the city's role as a tax haven in itself, which Morris will help, help talk about, but also the role as the city as at the center of a global network of tax havens. So to start off with, I just want to run through what is a tax haven. There is no general agreement about what a tax haven is. There are lots of technical definitions out there. There are lots of uh, definitions that focus very heavily on tax. But one point I want to make is that they're not only about tax. They are about, ultimately, they're about escape. They're about uh, escape from uh, the rules, the regulations, the legislation, the laws of jurisdictions elsewhere. They're about escape and about elsewhere. Oops, sorry. And the word elsewhere is crucial. The, 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 the laws of the Cayman Islands, for example, they're not for the benefit of 50,000 Cayman residents. They're for the benefit of people elsewhere, the United States, Latin America, Europe, Asia, around the world. So it's always important to bear this in mind. These are, these are elsewhere zones. These are places where people can take their money and do business and do business where they're getting around either legally or, Ill or illegally, getting around what they're not allowed to do at home. Uh, there is a, there is a, a, a big grey area between the illegal and the legal poles of what's going on in tax havens. But if, essentially we must remember this word escape. And, and secrecy is a very, very important part of the whole system. I think that's quite widely understood. They're, they're known as, uh, another term for them is uh, secrecy jurisdictions. It's a term that has been gaining currency recently. Uh, it's been around for the last 10 years. But that's a, that's a term that I use alter alternatively with tax haven in the book. And the outcome of this ability to escape, it is generally only the wealthiest individuals and corporations who are able to use tax havens because it's generally quite expensive to use them. And the outcome of that is that you get one set of rules for wealthy and powerful elites and corporations and another set for the rest of the population. And I think this is something that affects all of us. It affects us here in the UK very much, but it also affects, it, it's very harmful to developing countries as well. Uh, you can just uh, imagine the roles that tax havens play in, in capital flight uh, and, and illicit outflows. Not something I'm going to get into today, but it's something important to remember. So I want to talk a little bit about how the British network of tax havens emerged. Tax havens have been around for years, uh, for decades, for centuries, in fact. There have always been places you can go offshore, pirate coves, whatever, for hundreds of years. You can go elsewhere to do things you're not allowed to do at home. But it's really in the period of, uh, of about the, the 1970s when things started to, started to properly take, take off in terms of the British next network. But one of the most important parts uh, of the emergence of the entire offshore system actually emerged in, in the 1950s. And this was pretty much exactly the same time that the, the, the end of the formal British Empire, the Suez Crisis of 1956, was an absolutely crucial marker for the, end, the, 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 the collapse of the British Empire. And at that time, there is a little bit of academic disagreement about when exactly this thing emerged. But at that time, before the offshore system really got on its feet, the city of London, things were, things were very quiet. Uh, politicians were relatively powerful vis-a-vis -vis the, the bankers. Uh, 
Uh, here's a quote from Oliver Franks, the chairman of Lloyd's at the time. It was like dragging a sleeping elephant to its feet with your own two hands. The banks were anesthetized. It was a kind of dream life. Um, and uh, at the same time, uh, um, Kynaston's book, The City of London, by Thursday afternoon at four, one of the senior partners would come across to the juniors and say, why are we all, are we all still here? It's almost the weekend. So this was an era where there was a, a very subdued banking sector, and the financial sector was uh, essentially not impotent, but it was, it was very weak. And just imagine, it's, it's the contrast with today is, is absolutely striking if you read those sections in my book that, that discuss this. What happened then in the mid-50s, just as the formal British Empire was, was collapsing, was something that seemed quite accidental at the time, and I think there, there was a, a big element of accident of it, but uh, the emergence of the euro markets, the euro-dollar markets, uh, which is an offshore ma market, and it started off in the city of London. And this was essentially uh, the Bank of England uh, allowing an unregulated space uh, for financial institutions from elsewhere to come to London and could do business and they could get around certain rules and regulations uh, in their own countries, particularly American banks would, would come to London and they could get around interest rate caps and they could get around um, uh, certain tax, uh, tax effects. So it was an offshore mar market, it was, it was an escape route and uh, it grew with absolutely phenomenal speed. Uh, from, the, from these early beginnings, um, here's, a, here's a look at how it grew. And this is 1963. This is, 1963 is already some time after those early beginnings, um, so it was still quite small at, at the beginning. But really, in the 1970s, and it's the 1970s when the whole phase of global tax havenry really became something new, uh, from, from the old you know, Swiss banking model of, of, of secrecy and people stashing their money to something much more active, much more uh, aggressive and part of the whole process of globalization. And this is, um, I, I do think this is very much an untold part of the story of globalization. If you look at histories of globalization, uh, tax havens and offshore finance are a very small part of it, of, of, of what's out there in the literature. And I think this is something that needs uh, you know, we're here at the LSE now, and I hope there are people who can be inspired to start doing an awful lot more research into the role of tax havens in the globalization pro um, process. So this is, this is the, this offshore market in London. It started off in London. It started spreading to other centers. Um, and at the same time, sorry, uh, this is how significant the Eurodollar market is. This is um, Tim Congdon, who's a very well-known, you'll see him as a talking head on television, um, but his opinion was that the big, big Bang of 1986, which is what everybody talks about, is just a sideshow to, indeed, almost a byproduct of a much bigger bang, which has transformed international finance over the last 25 years. This is a market in which financial institutions from around the world can borrow and lend money, uh, but in a place where they, where they don't uh, have to submit to regu certain regulations that they don't like. Um, and Tim Congdon said, yes, the bigger bang is on all, all the relevant criteria a multiple of the size of the big bang. So this is absolutely of fundamental importance to the whole of, uh, whole of global finance and, and, and globalization. So back to Suez in 19, 1956. The emergence of this, uh, one of the academic articles, uh, Catherine Schenk, dates the emergence to June 1955 with some activities in London uh, with the Midland Bank that the Bank of England turned a blind eye to um, but what, what we're seeing here with the emergence of, of the offshore finance and particularly the Brit Britain's role is that 
you have a formal relinquishment of, of, of territories as the empire collapses. But at the same time, the city finds a new, the city which was very subdued at the time and finding it difficult to find, uh, make huge profits, finding a sudden new opportunity that all this international uh, borrowing and lending is being conducted through London um, through the creation of this, this um, unregulated space, including um, some of it was licit business, you know, was not illegal, some of it was, was, le was illegal, and, you know, huge capital flights started coming uh, as part of this market um, because of the lack of regulations. There was, it was impossible to control what was going on. Uh, and, and capital flight has a kind of demand side and a supply side. The demand side is the poor, you know, the poor governance in, in, in affected countries. Um, and the supply side is the provision of financial services that offer secrecy and allow uh, money to come out of countries without, uh, uh, without the, the owners of that money having to pay tax and being able to commit crimes around the world. So there's a, there's a huge problem here with this, uh, this globalization. I mean, globalization, has one can argue about it, um, but this is a very important part of it that, that needs much more attention. And one could argue that in the mid-1950s, replaced, Britain replaced one empire with a new financial empire centered on, on, on the city. Um, hence the title of this presentation. I dithered about whether to call it the city and its tax havens or the city and its tax haven empire, but I think uh, why not be a little bit polemical? This is, my book is a book that is, uh, it is a polemical book. It is a book with an opinion. But so what happened, you had the emergence of the euro markets in the 1950s, and then you had a host of new British tax havens beginning to emerge in places um, such as the Bahamas that had been involved in offshore activity for a long time. The Bahamas had been very big on um, American uh, you know, mafia activity and stuff like that. Um, the euro markets as this offshore unregulated space spread rapidly into, the, into these financial centers and became interconnected with the city of London. Um, and this was, uh, now we're talking about the 1960s and particularly the 1970s, a new sort of aggressive phase when these centers really started aggressively uh, touting for business and changing their legislation in order to attract business. We have stronger secrecy than the next jurisdiction. We have uh, uh, lower ta we have zero taxes and we won't, uh, we won't provide any information to, 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 other, to your governments about what you're doing. These were all lures that were luring business. And this, com this competition between jurisdictions led to a kind of race to the bottom as, uh, as secrecy got deeper and stronger, more money flowed into these centers. And you had centers that had, become, that had been largely a place for sort of very wealthy tax evaders and, and criminals, multinational corporations started getting really in on this, on, on this game, um, and particularly, particularly banks. And, and the tax haven system grew very, very substantially. But what's interesting about this is that it was the whole, all of this tax havenry, this offshore business was very subtly encouraged by certain, uh, certain uh, parts of the British establishment, particularly the Bank of England. Um, and it's a complicated picture. There's, there's different, you, if you go through the, the records, we have, uh, uh, I had a, a fabulous researcher, Paul Sagar, who, who did a lot of work in the, in the National Archives for me, um, who, who, pay, who dug out the, all the material that, that explained how all these battles were going on in London about should we let this happen, should we be encouraging these places to open themselves up to offshore finance. Uh, and you'd have the, the Bank of England subtly saying, well, yes, uh, 
a lot of circumlocution, but essentially the Bank of England pressing ahead saying these, these places can, can be good for us. So a few quotes. Uh, this is one letter from the Bank of England, uh, and I haven't written it down. I think this one was to uh, Inland Revenue. Dear Walker, re um, regarding a request that the bank might consider the possibility of approaching UK banks with a view to obtaining information from them about remittances made to tax havens on behalf of customers, dot, 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 dot. We have considered this proposition thoroughly and we're inclined to think that it carries with it certain dangers. We prefer not to pursue this request. And there are lots and lots of things in the archives um, like this. Here's, an, here's another example. Uh, we therefore need to be sure that the possible proliferation of trust companies, banks, etc., which in most cases would be no more than brass plates, manipulating assets outside the islands, doesn't get out of hand. There is, of course, no objection to their providing bolt holes for non-residents. So there's this sense of we will try and protect the British revenue if we can, but if it's um, causing trouble for other countries, we don't really care. And, and there is an awful lot of this stuff, if you look for it in the archives, there's a very clear pattern emerged. Um, and Britain's partners were getting quite worried about this. The United States uh, was often complaining. Uh, people in the US were complaining, uh, senior people in the US were complaining to the UK, A, about the euro markets, which made it very difficult for them to enforce their own financial regulations, but also about the, these tax havens on their, their doorsteps. Um, so here's... Uh, Another quite, quite, quote from the USA deploring the United Kingdom's encouragement of tax havens. But still, the tax havens proliferated. And effectively what happened was, while all this argument was going on in London, the tax havens just, just kept going with building, building their legislation and attracting money. And there was very little, perhaps as a result of the fact that there was no real agreement in London, there was very, there was, uh, very little pressure on them to change. And here's a letter from... Um, uh, Tony, Be Tony Benn endorsing a constituent's letter. Uh, this is Tony Benn's endorsement, and the constituent's letter says, I am somewhat surprised to see a Mr. Gent from the Bank of England seeking at the conference, this is a conference in Jersey, and giving advice on how to avoid paying UK taxes. I wonder if this is really part of the Bank of England's duties. Does the UK Treasury have no control over the Bank of England activities in matters such as these? Surely bank employees should not be working against government policy. And just what sort of arrangements and deals are made at these events behind the scenes? It really is just a bit too sordid to be true. So this is, uh, that was in 1975, and here's a graph starting in 1975. That, that was a conference in Jersey, and what we have here is, uh, th this is another dramatic, dramatic illustration of how quickly and how enormously uh, business has grown in Jersey. This is just banking deposits in, 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 in Jersey. Um, Jersey does a lot of, there's an awful lot of other business. And that graph kind of brings us to today. How much more time do I have? Ten minutes. Ten minutes, okay. Now, where are the world's tax havens and, and what are they? Well, the traditional view is that tax havens are, you know, Caribbean islands, uh, Switzerland, Liechtenstein, maybe Hong Kong. Uh, and a couple of places in the Pacific, maybe. Small islands, that is the traditional stereotypical view. And one of the, and, and, and one of the re reviews of my book in The Guardian um, was by somebody who basically couldn't accept this and said, this is, this is what tax havens are, and, and you, can't, you can't write a book saying it's more, you know, the, the system is bigger than that. But in fact, the, big, the, the system is much, much, much bigger than that. And the biggest tax havens in the world are the United States, 
If you do the objective analysis, the United States, Luxembourg, Switzerland, of course, the Cayman Islands, the United Kingdom, and the next biggest are countries like Ireland and the Netherlands. So what we're talking about, if you analyze what tax havenry is about this escape, um, not just on tax, if you follow the anal analysis through, you will find that this is, these are the biggest providers of these offshore services. Um, and the only objective ranking that's ever been set up of tax havens uh, is one called the Financial Secrecy Index, which was uh, put together by the Tax Justice Network. Um, a couple of people who are sitting over there were um, uh, Richard, particularly, was, was very instrumental in, in, in putting this together. And this ranking um, looked at an opacity score, which is a qualitative measure, looking at how secretive a ju jurisdiction is, putting together a number of different uh, uh, secrecy markers and, and ranking them on that, and combine that with a weighting according to how big and how, uh, how large that this uh, cross-border financial services activity is. And, and the results of that were very, very clear indeed. And as I said, it was, it was uh, United States, Luxembourg, Switzerland, uh, Cayman Islands, UK in the top five. But part of that research also produced this picture of tax havens. Now, these are the list itself is drawn from a series from uh, a number of different uh, rank lists of tax havens that are made by various official institutions. And we have 60, I think it's right, 60, 60 havens on this list. All of the ones in blue are British in some way. So we have Jersey, Guernsey, and the Isle of Man, uh, the Crown Dependencies, which are partly British, partly not British. I went, when I went to Jersey as part of the research for my book, I remember coming back and friends asking me, you know, what's Jersey like? And, and the best explanation I could think of was, the best description I could think of was a, a kind of cross between Bournemouth and Equatorial Guinea. Because it feels so very British. And all the, uh, all the different, you know, you go to the high street and it's got all the, you know, HMVs and boots and whatever. And, you know, kids hanging around outside the chip shops and baggy trousers and but also this incredibly alien political system, this extremely alien and uh, very corrupt uh, way, of, way of doing business. It, it is a jurisdiction that has been captured by the financial services industry, uh, absolutely captured. And there are dissidents on the island, who I quote in the book, who have confronted the financial services industry in Jersey and, and come across and had a terrible time. There's one of them, Stuart Sivray, is currently fighting to stay out of prison for um, some, some uh, work that he's been doing. So it's, it's, it's a very, these are very, very alien places, but they're also very familiar. The Cayman Islands also is, um, it has a different character. It's, it feels much more American uh, than British, but it, there, there is a governor appointed by the Queen. Um, all of the things that matter as far as financial services are concerned are effectively controlled from London, but there's enough distance for them to say, well, this is not our business. We can't do anything about this when something uh, breaks the surface. So that's the crown, the crown dependencies of Jersey, Guernsey, and the Isle of Man. The Cayman Islands, Bermuda, Gibraltar, various other overseas territories are kind of like the, the last remnants of the British Empire, which are, again, governor appointed by the Queen. Look at the, look at the British flag on their, on, their, um, on their own flags. 
These are, again, half in, half out of Britain, uh, where Britain plays this incredible controlling role. And so half the world's, half the global offshore system is British, in a way. And, and sorry, the outer ring, there's, there's the, uh, the, the British Commonwealth and lots of places like Hong Kong that have very deep historical relations with Britain and were set up by Britain and, and um, with, particularly with support from the city. So you have these kind of three, wing, three, three, three rings. Um, half the global offshore system is British. So here in this, in this city, we have an enormous uh, responsibility for this whole system. But it's not, this is not, that I, I quoted the Tax Justice Network. This is Mark Field, um, who is one of the city's uh, noisiest supporters and one of the noisiest supporters of tax havens. Again, also saying half of the top 30 offshore financial centers are British dependencies or territories, um, which actually means that if you're, if you're waiting it, um, waiting the system, then, then, then Britain probably looms even larger. So, as I've said, there's this, el there's this elsewhere characteristic of tax havens. These places are partly in, partly outside the UK. People in the UK can go and do business in these places, and they're not really in the UK, but they are reassured by the fact that Britain has this controlling role um, that is the bedrock that's kind of supporting these places. It is the reassurance for the financial industry that uh, these places aren't going to all, all um, collapse. What these places do, now we get back to the city of London. I, it, it's a slightly uh, sinister analogy that I make in the book, but uh, I think it is the best analogy, and it's, um, uh, it's like a spider's web. It's like you have all these havens around the world, scattered around the globe, in the Caribbean, focusing on the Americas, North and South America, the Crown Dependencies, particularly focusing on Europe. Uh, out in the Pacific, there are um, uh, smaller havens focusing on Australia and on, on Asia. You have Hong Kong, Singapore and Asia. So you have this network around the globe and these places are effectively serving as among other things, they're serving as feeders for the city of London. And the amounts of money are absolutely enormous. So money will be attracted out of a jurisdiction into a tax haven for wh whatever reason. Um, it could be a particular uh, tax avoidance strategy by a multinational corporation or it could be uh, you know, a politician salting away his nation's you know, a dictator looting his country. Um, so there is again this licit and illicit component to what's going on. But this, the business of handling this money particularly will be, some of it will be handed in the haven itself but some of it will be sent up to the city and so the city has the huge interest in all these tax havens being uh, being out there and, and doing their business aggressively. So these are, the city is being fed huge amounts of money and business by, uh, by, the, by the, the, the tax havens. And new ones are popping up all the time here in uh, Botswana, Ghana, new tax havens that nobody really has paid much attention to. Neither of them have really got off the ground yet, and I don't know whether they will, but they are certainly trying something. And um, uh, more in-depth research needs to be done into this, but there does seem to be a very significant city influence in both of these, uh, in both of these cases. And what they are looking, um, looking at doing is, is looking at business in the sub-region. Um, Ghana obviously focusing on the oil-rich uh, part of West Africa and, and Botswana focusing on Southern Africa. So again, this geographical focus and, and um, business, if these places take off, will feed into the city. Meanwhile, the, the, the Lord Mayor of the city... How much more time do I have? About five minutes. 
Five minutes, okay. The Lord Mayor of the City of London. Um, uh, I don't know how many, there may be people here who aren't from the UK, but London has, has a mayor and a Lord Mayor, and uh, Morris here will, will fill us in on that. But the Lord Mayor of the, of the City of London, which is a, a, a one square mile uh, territory in London that is the financial district, historically the financial district, one of his official roles is to lobby worldwide for financial liberalization. And in terms of the city network and the haven network, what, what this means is that um, as they succeed in um, influencing other countries to liberalize their financial services industry, that means there's more business kind of floating around in the vicinity, more business to be attracted into the, into the networks, into the haven networks, and more business for the city. Um, so, and you will, if you start looking for these things, you will see the city, um, the Lord Mayor, but other members of the city lobbying hard to protect the, uh, the tax havens around the world and to rebut attacks on tax havens. And um, I've been expecting a few more attacks on my book from them, but I haven't yet had anything too bad. But there are lots of, uh, there are lots of examples of this. Here's one just I picked up uh, a couple of days ago. Um, this is about Jersey. This is Nick Anstey speaking in... Jersey finance liter lit um, literature saying Jersey and the City of London must continue to put forward a united voice when responding to proposals from government and regulators hard, fast and early. In other words, we've got to stop these, uh, we've got to, to, to lobby for what we want and, and we're in it together, we, the city and Jersey. Um, this is Nick Anstey again. Um, even during the banking crisis, Jersey was the largest provider of net deposits, supplying in the region of 218.3 billion to UK banks in the second quarter of 2009 uh, alone. So that's an example of, of, of the feeding, uh, feeding of money, uh, this, in this case, banking deposits. Another example is uh, a quarter of Chinese companies li listed on London's alternative investment market uh, incorporated in, in Jersey. Um, thereby delivering significant professional fees to the UK. So this is the business of handling money being passed up to the city from the tax havens. Um, and Jersey Finance, there's a, there's a quote, actually I didn't put in here, but this is, uh, the Jersey Finance puts it very plainly. Jersey is an extension of the city of London there, so that quote is in my book. I, I thought I'd put it in this presentation, but I didn't. But anyway, that's the, that's the actual quote. So what we have is this network of, 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 of havens feeding money through to the city. But also, it's very important to take away this idea of tax havens as sort of half-in, half-out elsewhere zones, zones that are, that are um, not, they're not, uh, they're for people elsewhere to do their business. And on that subject, the half-in, half-out elsewhere zone, I've, I think that's time for me to hand over to, to, to Morris. Um, because he's going to talk about the City of London as a half-in, half-out, elsewhere zone within the United Kingdom. So, thank you very much. Um, so, good evening, and, and thank you very much, Nick. Just to say how proud I am of your book and the work you did and, and how good it is. I also see that uh, William Taylor, my friend William Taylor is here and I just want to also publicly acknowledge William as, as a friend and also as a wonderful partner in this work in the city and who actually brought the city to my attention. Very ambiguous gift that you gave me, but I, I thank you anyway. And I'd like to thank William as well because yeah. he's been very helpful. And, it's, um, and so the story I'm going to tell 
I'm going to begin now, go quite a way back and come back. It's a very difficult story because, as Nick is mentioning, we've got to begin to conceptualise what it means to be invisible and what it means to have invisible power. And uh, for those of us who got really stoned in the 1970s, there's very great dangers in all this that you could just drift away um, into an offshore island of your own. So I ask you to bear with me and to, um, and to just try and understand how it is that a real empire has morphed into an invisible empire, how the islands in the sea are the trace of what was once a great uh, military and political power, and the way that what I'm going to talk about, a maritime economy, has dominated our territorial politics. But I'll begin with an anecdote of my own to kind of bring it up to date. I used to be a musician, this used to happen to me all the time. Um, at least my mum's not here to see it, that's a, that's a relief. And um, I'll begin with an anecdote. Um, so when I was announced that I was going to be a lord, I went to see someone called Garter, Garter, Principal King of Arms, who's in charge of the um, titles. And uh, I have to actually call him Garter, which I find strange in some way, and he looked exactly like, I don't know if anybody here has seen With Nail and I? You know the uncle, that guy, the... Uncle Monty. Uncle Monty, the one who I could have trod the boards as the Dane, but it didn't work out that way. And um, I went to see him, he's got a very big office in the city of London, and he said, so have you made a decision about the title that you'd like to have? And I said, yes, I'd, I'd like to be the Lord of the city of London, if that's okay. And he had a look on his face. It was halfway between, you know, just before a baby has a poo, there's a kind of look on their face that's half smile, half grief that kind of comes. And you think it's a smile, but it's not a smile. It's something else. That was the look I got. And he said, well, we'll have to look into that. And phone calls were made. And when I went back to see him, he said, at the moment, it's impossible for us to do that. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, it's just impossible at the moment. He said, but, um, but we will discuss it. And, um, and then he put me through to a man sitting in number 10, who was the man in charge of the royal appointments. And I said, you know, I'd like to be alert. He said, well, he said, the problem is you can't do that because London is the capital city. So I said, where are you sitting? And he said, I'm sitting in number 10 Downing Street. And I said, well, aren't you sitting in the capital city? And I got that thing that I used to get. Now, that's not what I mean, he said. Anyway, there was a big hoo-ha, and in the end, I was told very emphatically, both verbally and in written terms, that my request was unprecedented and unacceptable. So uh, there you go. I think, I think that's the way that the English establishment says no. Yes. And so, so I said, you know, I just was playing with it. I said, I'm a lord, you know. Why? Why is that? And um, I got told again, I said, who rules? You know, does Parliament rule? Why can't Parliament decide? Or does the city rule? To which I've got a great answer, which is, I think you know the answer to that. So there you go. I just, I just uh, share that with you. It's just a little anecdote. For those of you who think that the Corporation of the City of London is a sort of tourist marketing exercise, an institution with no real power, I just uh, draw that story to your attention that it indeed unacceptable. And so what I want to do is, is look at certain concepts that, that Nick introduced. He talked about the concept of escape, he talked about the concept of secrecy, he talked about the idea of invisibility. 
these are important ideas. Um, I also want to add one more, which is the concept of islands. I think that's very important. So escape, secrecy, invisibility. And what I did when I was looking at the City of London is I began to realise there's a big debate that interests about eight people in the world, which concerns the status of the ancient economy, the ancient economy of Rome and of Greece, and whether this economy was characterised by contract or whether it was characterised by status. There's massive, it's known as the primitive modern debate, it's known as the status contract debate. There's um, essentially in each a modernist it's almost like a liberal communitarian debate but not quite as bad as that and it just goes back in time um, about what was going on in the ancient economies because what you see is two simultaneously two completely contradictory things you see uh, an economy based on um, limits on rents which are given by habitation by the amount of time you've stayed there there's agreements on interest rates which in the Roman Empire never go beyond 5% there's wages that are fixed. And so, to all intents and purposes, what you have is an embedded economy or a status economy where things are not allowed to be freely traded. And simultaneously, there's huge evidence of contractual commercial relations. So this has political significance because there's sort of people very much associated with, with the LSE, I guess, who would be arguing that capitalism is a very recent phenomenon that hasn't existed for very long. By the way, I do blame, I just want to say I'm very pleased to be here, but I do blame the LSE for a lot of this, I must say. Um, first of all, I blame them because it was founded by a, a bunch of progressive Fabians who thought that they'd conquered capitalism in about 1953, and I think that was probably a mistake. Um, and secondly, I blame them because of the acronym, London School of Economics, and you completely forgot about the politics. And that's a very big problem because what we've got to do is remember the relationship between political institutions and economic power because if you forget that, then Nick's escape comes into play. The economy becomes this free-floating, completely borderless zone of exchange where there can never be any effective political control. So I'd like to start a campaign here to bring the politics back into the LSE acronym, but I don't really think that's going to be very successful. So, what I want to concentrate here is, is this argument in the, about the ancient economies. And essentially, what I realised about the foundation of London shed light for me about the distinction between a maritime economy and a territorial economy. So, essentially, what you had in the ancient world was a territorial economy which was characterised by regulation. And essentially what regulation means is there are limits to your returns on investment that are given by political agreements that constrain capital. So what is capital? I just want to go into that before. Capital, capitalism is a system that's based on the maximum return on your investment. So any capitalist will want to absolutely get the maximum return on their investment. What is democratic politics? Democratic politics is the attempt that human beings make to resist the rule of capital and to establish some status for themselves in their natural environment, roughly speaking, as human beings and as some form of stable external environment too. So capital is based on the maximum returns on investment and what you have in the ancient world is definitely not a capitalist system because there's so many constraints given by rent given by wages, given by interest rates that forbid the uh, effective pursuit of the maximum degree of profits. 
So what you have in the ancient world is a territorial political economy that is combined with a completely contractual maritime economy. In other words, don't look at Rome, look at Ostia, don't look at Athens, look at Piraeus. But here in London, we were the latest of the Roman cities established at the furthest distance from Rome. The ports, you know, Marseille um, is a very important one, very important ports in Spain too. But essentially, London is the furthest away and is not established as a political city, it's established as a emporium, as a port. And the people who come to London initially are Italians, Jews, Greeks, Spanish. Things don't change that much. And, um, but this time, not to do a master's in business studies at LSE, but to make some serious money. And um, they come to London and they established London as effectively as a, as a port city, and they are known as the citizens of Rome in London established. So London, the reason that's important is that London is not itself a political city. And what you have in London is a freely contractual economy. And they build the biggest walls in Europe. This is after the people in Essex had a few things to say about this, as you may or may not know. And... Um, after London was completely wiped out by West Ham fans, it was rebuilt with a very big wall, the biggest wall in Europe, and everybody's kind of got the wrong idea about the wall. The idea of the wall was very much to keep the people out and to keep London open to the sea. So you have a maritime contractual economy. Now, these contracts in maritime law were secret, and these contracts in maritime law were invisible you burnt the contract after the boat. And the idea was, it was called bottomry. Now, when I first came across bottomry, I thought this, this could go wrong. And, um, <laughs> and it did. And, and bottomry is the insurance system whereby, essentially, the further away you go, the higher your rates of return, that the danger of the voyage is factored into the calculation of the rate of return. And where there is no political or legal supervision or setting of the rate. Now, what this solved in terms of the ancient economy was it was a bit difficult. It's a bit like, you know, now. In order to have a political life, you needed to have great glory. In order to have a political life, you needed to have money. You needed to be philanthropic. You needed to endow games. You needed to entertain your new friends. You know, and um, you know, speaking from personal experience, we could all do with more liquidity, greater liquidity, more money, but you couldn't get the money at the rate of return. So what you had was a system where the political elites were actually speculating on foreign maritime trade, and in that way, invisibly and secretly and seemingly without doing any work, they were um, achieving great riches. So London was always a source of enormous secret money. That's essentially how it was embedded in the system. Now, I just want to go... So that's the difference between the maritime and the territorial economy. That is the ambiguity of London as a city. That's the whole point that I tell you about my conversation with Garter and the man in Downing Street when I say, is, you know, what I said was, aren't you getting confused between a capital city and a city of capital? At which point, you know, I was basically sent from the room for being a clever clogs, which is a very important concept in the British establishment, I find. So... 
what we have in London is it's simultaneously the capital city of the country, it's the centre of its capital, but this is the big part of the story. London, the city of London, has never been effectively incorporated into the British state. Now, I've sent to the LSE a blog I wrote this afternoon just to get this point straight. You can turn to it there. But essentially what, what the argument is is that the city of London is a city from time immemorial. That means time out of mind. Um, that means it was established before Parliament. There are four institutions in the ancient constitution, monarchy, church, Parliament, and the city of London. The City of London has never had to declare its assets because its assets are invisible. It's not just based on invisible earnings, which is a fabulous concept I'm going to come to soon, but its very assets are invisible because as an ancient city and as a city that has never been in debt, it has never had to declare its public assets. So the City of London also wasn't conquered in the Norman Conquest. There was a peace treaty between the city and William the Conqueror. And any attempt that the Crown and Parliament made to incorporate the city into the body politic were resisted actually quite violently. A very good story about King Charles I is that he made three requests to incorporate the city into London. The first one was refused. The second one was refused, and in the third one, he actually arrived at the gates with an army, and that was the beginning of the English Civil War, and the city, in fact, succeeded, I think, in chopping his head off. So the monarchy never really returned to the issue. It's also important to mention in relation to the church and the Reformation, that Archbishop Lord, who opposed enclosures, also had his head chopped off. So the city of London actually succeeded in, in the public killing of the Archbishop of Canterbury and the King. I think that's a fairly strong statement of the sort of power that they held. And what's also going on is this extraordinary story, alone in Europe, the city does not expand. Now there's the Vatican City, that's a different story. That's a nation state grows around a, a, an explicitly ecclesiastical polity. But in the, city of, in the case of the City of London, London is simultaneously part of the English state and then the British state, but also away from it, not of it. Um, we've got the case of, I don't know if any of you have followed, the case of very interesting would be the Billingsgate Porters. The Billingsgate Porters are a group of porters that have been publicly recognised since uh, 1570. The original guy who met William the Conqueror when he came, the two people who met William the Conqueror when he arrived in London, there's William the Conqueror, he's got his people behind him, but the city has a militia and two men get sent out to negotiate with William the Conqueror. One is called the Bishop, and I think we can understand perfectly well who the Bishop was, but the other one is called the Portreeve, which is the, which is an Anglo-Saxon term for essentially a porter. It was the chief porter, and the key is, is, is that it's the sea and the land. How do you mediate that relationship between the sea and the land? You've got the sea, you've got smuggling, you've got loads of goods moving around. It's very, very difficult to impose any form of law. And then you've got your territorial polity, and the porter was the mediator between the territorial polity and the maritime economy. And the head, the chief porter, was called the portree. Now, that's been translated, I think, wrongly as mayor. He was, in fact, the head porter of the city, and he goes out and he negotiated with the bishop the peace treaty with William the Conqueror that allowed alone in England, London could keep its language, oh damn, London could keep its customs, London could keep its legal system of freehold property, London could keep its courts. 
So the rest of the country was conquered by a quite authoritarian, I don't want to be a quite authoritarian and aggressive sort of French person. And England was actually reduced to the city and the city succeeded over time in resisting the domination of the feudal state of the Norman state. Obviously a lord is a completely feudal idea and the idea of feudal lordship is that the country would be divided into distinct areas of which there would be a lord who would then pay homage to the king. And it's very interesting, I knew, I kind of knew that I was going to be rejected when I asked to be the Lord of the City of London because indeed it is unprecedented and genuinely unacceptable. So I just want to come to the, to the point here about invisibility, secrecy and the status of the City of London. Um, essentially, the population of London was removed. So the City of London is the great bearer of a tremendous political autonomy. For a thousand years, it has defended itself against the encroachment of the state. And as the populations moves out and the livery companies, particularly the commercial livery companies, become more powerful, the city effectively, the greatest democratic continuous city in all of Europe, becomes a lobbyist for free markets, for capital, for the power of capital. And this is where I, I, I'm told I haven't got long, so this is where I'll end. Is that, so what essentially we have is that the maritime economy, the sea, is flooding the land. There's no more status at work. It's not allowed. There's no more possibility of having any security at work. That's against the demands of globalization. Democracy is populist if it begins to confront the domination of money power. And why is that? That is because essentially what Nick has described in his book is true. So capital is promiscuous. That's its nature. It wants an immediate return on its investment. It will leave a stable relationship. I say this very carefully because my wife is indeed in the audience and I don't want to show too great an intimacy with the subject matter. But what I'm saying is that capital will leave its partners in order to get new, fresh, more vital experiences to get more return on its investment. It is the role of any statecraft, any polity, to try to domesticate this viral energy of capitalism in order to try to constrain and control that energy in ways that can actually underpin the flourishing of human life and not render it asunder. What has happened in the last 30 years under both Thatcher and New Labour is that we've never, we've, the motor of growth is the city of London. So, so this relentless promiscuity of relationships has in fact become the order so what you have, in effect, is countries, tax havens, are basically offering a haven where capital can act in an entirely unconstrained way with great damage to the natural environment and to the human beings who have to try and live stable lives within that context. So there's obviously a lot more to say, but I've got my orders to finish. What I will end on is is just to, to stress um, Nick's point and to say, every, you know, Marvin Gaye said, what's going on? That's a very good album. And I think Marvin Gaye's question should always take precedence to Lenin's question of what is to be done, but both have to be asked temporally. And the what's going on is that we're all at sea. What's going on is that we've got 
a massive rage about the deficit. The bankers blew it. I mean, do you need any greater statement about the power of the City of London? They blow all the money, we bail them out, and then we get cut. It's a stupendous act of shameless power. And they say, well, if you don't support this, then we won't have economic growth. But we don't have economic growth because the City of London will not invest in the country because the rates of return in the financial sector are always higher than in the real economy. And therefore, we are completely hitched our wagon to a very, very, very volatile mistress. So we often ask, so what's going on? We're living in a world dominated by money, we're living in a world dominated by capital, we're living in a world of disenchanted politics and a very, very ferocious um, form of unmediated globalisation. That's the Marvin Gaye question. Then what is to be done? We respond, obviously, in anger, rage, fury, but that's not the way. The way is to think about how we can act together to salvage a more human world from all of this. And for everybody who's committed to you know, developing countries, to, to, to making the world a better place, there is no more urgent task than to democratise London, than to have the city of London as a place that all of London should be a city. I don't live in a city, I live in Hackney, you know. Some people call it a shanty town. I think it's a bit better than that, but not much. And why is it not much? Because there was no London-wide civic authority until 1899 with the LCC. Then when that started getting going, that was abolished and became the GLC. When the GLC got going and actually started to ask some questions, that was abolished entirely. And then what have we got? We've got a, what is this? A, a Greater London Authority. What kind of thing is that for a great city like this? It's absolutely disgusting. We should all be deeply ashamed of that. And it's time, please. So I'll leave it there. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much to, to both our speakers. I'm, I'm sorry to pushed you a little bit, yeah, but okay. I did want to make sure we would have time for some questions uh, from the audience. Uh, I would ask you three things. One, there are microphones around. There are certainly microphones upstairs. So are we covered by the microphone downstairs, or do we have roving microphones downstairs? Yes, we have roving microphones downstairs and upstairs. Uh, secondly, would you please, uh, if you wish, identify yourself by name and institution or affiliation if possible. And finally, please ask a, a question and try and keep it brief so people have the opportunity to, to ask other questions rather than making a statement. Thank you for two very interesting presentations. My name is Alistair Pettigrew. I'm retired. Um, my question is, since the be beginning of time, rich people and rich organizations have um, avoided, as far as they possibly can, paying tax all over the world. Is there not, therefore, uh, an argument that there is probably some benefit to us uh, in the rest of Britain uh, in having the City of London here? A, because we probably get some wealth as a result of it, and it also gives us 
moral superiority to uh, instead of financial or to replace financial inferiority. Well, I think um, this is one of the arguments that the city. This is the argument that, that the city would make. We bring in so much money, so much tax revenue. As I was introduced, um, it was mentioned that I spent a lot of time writing about oil and politics in West Africa. One of the things I noticed was that these countries, Nigeria, for example, vast quantities of money coming into the country, um, huge, huge financial inflows um, coming in. And it was very hard to find the evidence that if you look at the lives of ordinary people in these countries, that they were actually any better as a result of all these fantastically gigantic inflows that dwarfed anything else that was coming into the country. So, and, and there's this whole, there's a whole literature about the so-called resource curse or resource impact, um, and there's a, there's a genuine question about whether these countries that are producing, uh, that are dependent on commodities like oil actually, actually do well out of it. And, and the same question really applies to all this money coming into the UK. Are we better off as a result of all this uh, money? Even if you answered this question back in uh, 2007 before the financial crisis hit, you, you would actually find it quite difficult, if you look at the, the system as a whole, to say that this, this has benefited the country. Clearly, vast amounts of money have come into the country. Um, but are we better off than people in Germany, than ordinary people in France, uh, in, in Sweden, in other countries where, where they don't have these huge offshore finance, financial influ, inflows? And I, I would argue that it, it's very hard to make a case that we are better, better off as a result of this. Uh, I, I would argue the opposite. We are a much more unequal countries, country than, uh, than many of our, our, our peers. And uh, so I, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to say that, that the city overall, if you look at the system as a whole, the country as a whole, the lives of ordinary people, that, that, this has, that it has done the country any good. Uh, I know it's a very easy argument to make in reverse, to say, oh, there's a look at all this money coming in. Isn't it brilliant? But my experience for the last um, 20 years of looking at countries that have been receiving all this money is that, that it's not necessarily, uh, that it's not helpful. It, it has made more unequal society. There's that. There's also the factor of uh, you really do genuinely, here in Britain, as a result of uh, all of this, you do have a kind of two-tier democracy in Britain. You have a system where you have one set of rules, um, partly through the offshore tax havens, but also through the city itself standing as an alone as a kind of semi, half in, half out offshore island. You do have a real system in Britain and the non-domicile rule that allows certain people to, to, to escape large amounts of tax. You do have a, a, a great undermining of democracy and a real sense among people, particularly now, um, that, that, we, that there is uh, one set of rules for, for, for the rich and, rich and um, powerful and one set of rules for everybody else. So there was all those, but there were all those economic questions even before the financial crisis hit. Now that we've had the financial crisis and we're in the economic crisis, the argument, I think, is even stronger that this stuff has actually harmed us. That's us in Britain. Think now about developing countries that have been suffering from, uh, from huge capital outflows, uh, illicit outflows and illicit outflows um, through, through the tax havens, but particularly the illicit out outflows. The harm that is being wreaked on countries around the world, that's a subject for another, another talk. But uh, that is another factor to be brought into all of this. So in, all in all, I think the, the, the amount of harm that has come out of this system, um, it has not benefited the UK, in my, in my opinion, and it and has caused great harm to other countries. Upstairs, please.
John Strafford. Um, has any estimate been made as to the amount of tax that's avoided in these tax havens uh, and uh, what should be done about them and what is meant by democratise the City of London? How much tax is avoided? Well, there are lots of different ways of slicing, slicing the data. There are a few um, estimates that are put out there. There's a subject of avoided taxes. There's a subject of illicit outflows. Um, going back, on, on the subject of illicit outflows, um, this month uh, an, an organization in the United States, the Global Financial Integrity, put out some new research looking at illicit outflows from developing countries. Um, in 2008, the figure was 1.26 trillion, that's trillion, not billion, of illicit outflows. That's money that's illegally earned, illegally transferred, or illegally used. Um, and tax havens play a very, very central role in that. So that's illicit outflows. Taxes avoided, you again have to slice it different ways. There's the taxes avoided by individuals, there's taxes avoided by corporations. If you're uh, talking about wealthy individuals, there are estimates between 10 and 20 trillion dollars stock of uh, wealth held offshore and you can do calculations with various different interest rates and, and, and loss and, and tax rates and, what and the tax rates that they're paying and you, you would probably end up with a figure between 250 and 500 billion dollars a year as, as a global, global estimate. Corporations, uh, again, there's another, there's another whole game going there, global corporations. And I must confess that I can't uh, remember the, the data on that, but it's, it's, we're talking about comparable numbers. I don't know if there's anybody um, on corporations. Perhaps, Richard, you have... The corporation figure will be lower, actually, than the personal one. Uh, well, it is actually ultimately owned by individuals. Of course, a lot of that will be owned through shell companies and trusts. But actually, corporate behaviour will be a smaller set of loss than the personal one. It will still right. be So we're talking very large, very large numbers. Was that both of your questions? Ah, what should be done about it? Well, Lenin's question. Oh, yes, <laughs> that, that's a very big subject. There's no, there's no magic bullet to this. There's no um, riding in on a white charger and charger and you know spearing the dragon. There are lots of different ways that that needs to be tackled. The first, the first problem, the reason nothing has been done about it, the, the starting point has to be people have to see what's going on. People have to. This has to be a process of education. This is just really starting in the last few years. Um, this I, one of the things that mystified me while I was writing this book is why has nobody, why had nobody written this book ten years ago, why, or five years ago. Um, it's an absolute misery. It, it, it's a system that has been flown under the radar. People have seen it as a kind of um, problem for, you know, just a few, a few mafiosi. But it's, it's obviously f central to the global uh, financial system today. So we haven't even seen it. So that's the first thing that has to happen is people have to see it and, and understand it. And I, I really hope that a lot of people here, um, people particularly who are students, um, will start researching this stuff in, in much greater detail depth because a, a huge, huge amount of research needs to be done. So that's the first thing, education understanding. Um, then we get into a lot of more complicated uh, area, and I don't think we have time to do that. There, there is, a, at the end of my book, I'm sorry to be a little bit mercenary here, but at the end of my book I have a sort of list of ten uh, 
different things that need to be need to need to need to be addressed. And, and the most important one that I identified was again a rather woolly one, but rather but very important is and a change of the whole culture. A whole offshore culture has been allowed to develop and been accepted and. Uh, a lot of talking heads on the radio, you will hear saying that offshore finance is very good for the economy, and it's never really until very recently been properly questioned. So um, we need a, a, a big cultural change. That is a very, a very woolly answer. I'm sorry not to be more specific, but I think you have to um, look in my book and also the work of people like the Tax Justice Network who have done a lot of detailed work in, in this area. So. And, uh, just very briefly on this democratization of what, the, what does that mean? We wouldn't accept that the trade unions have a monopoly of power in the city of Sheffield, that the city of Sheffield should be a lobby group for the trade unions. Why do we accept that there's a political authority that exclusively represents the interests of money? So what I'm saying is, this is we are not a local authority. London is a city, that all of London should be constituted as a city that all the assets and privileges and rights and customs of the city, that we should have a democratically elected Lord Mayor, that Boris Johnson should live in Mansion House, that we should have a London Parliament in the Guildhall, and that way we will resist the lobbying power of finance to turn our forests into commercial opportunities, to turn our ports into <laughs> privatised assets. This is... I'm still getting used to them to saying things that people applaud, so forgive me if I, <laughs> if I seem uneasy. It, you know, because just to go back to this thing with the word we don't like to use, you know, the C word, capitalism. You know, um, what capitalism does is something, it brings energy and vitality to the economy. Things change, things move. I'm not disputing the importance and vitality of capital. But if capital is allowed to exert its maximum power, then it turns human beings and nature into commodities. How do we resist that? This is an old, old story. I'm very interested, very, very pleased that, that my good friend Luke Bretherton is here from King's College London. We work a lot together on this idea of how faith communities are constituted as things that try to protect the idea of the person. So to try to reconceptualise faith communities not as agents of oppression, patriarchy and exploitation, but in fact it was the bishop and the portreeve who met William the Conqueror at the gates. The keep alive the power. All we've got is our power of association in each other. That's it. So what we've got to do here in London is get together. That's why devotion to London citizens is part of that. We should all be London citizens. We should, we should have a march south, east, west, north, surround the city and claim our rights. Uh, thank you for uh, very interesting, uh, two very interesting uh, talks. My name is Gunnar Beck. I uh, teach EU law. Um, I've got two points, really, and a very uh, 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 brief uh, uh, question uh, 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 to introduce them. Firstly, when you said the uh, top tax haven was the United States, I suppose you were referring to the United States offshore in the same sense in which uh, you were referring to the offshore tax havens uh, 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 that are in some sense uh, British. Uh, then my second point is really, I mean, um, 
very interesting to uh, 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 hear Nick uh, Shaxton uh, outline the basic uh, uh, framework uh, 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 for uh, tax avoidance. In fact, I mean, most of these facts were uh, known to me, and it's surprising to see how open journalists, in particular in the City of London, often are about the degree of tax avoidance if one rings up uh, 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 one of the uh, 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 financial journals, they are quite open to say that, um, in fact, most bonus payments don't incur anything like the kind of tax people would normally expect people to pay uh, 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 on such earnings. Now, if it's relatively widely known, and if, say, critics of the system may even be raised to the peerage, then um, what, uh, why isn't it wi more widely discussed? And then finally, I mean we are rapidly approaching a system, aren't we, whereby there is some kind of international uh, plutocracy, one could almost say, that pays no tax at all, then there is the middle class, widely defined in terms of those whose earnings are essentially located uh, within the regulatory framework of the nation state with no obvious offshore dimension, that are then subsidizing those uh, largely dependent on, uh, uh, on, on state handouts. And this raises really the question, uh, in a time of globalization where uh, the nation state is being undermined in almost every respect, what hope is there for doing okay. anything about it? Thanks. Thank you for your knowledge. Okay. Everything about the question, I would argue with, I, in a time of globalization, as if this globalization is an unmediated progress that's going around in the world, in a time when the, who bailed out the banks? It wasn't the global system, it was nation states. It was a global crisis that led to national state um, solutions. And, and then this idea that state handouts, who were the biggest recipient ever of a state handout? The banks. That was the biggest transfer of wealth from poor to rich since the Norman Conquest in this country. Mervyn Kings reckon it was one trillion pounds if you include the quantitative easing. So this whole approach that there's this kind of benign globalization and nation states are shrinking, nation states are powerful, but what we have is a completely demoralized democratic polity. We have people who feel impotent, who feel powerless, who are having mental health problems, who can't keep their marriages together, who are losing their jobs. It's horrible out there, and this whole discourse completely undermines them. Globalization, it's a fact, it's going on, diminishing nation states. None of that's going on. What you've got is rich people maximizing the returns on their investment, and we've got to wake up and realize that only through association and political action can we resist it. And this sort of question is the worst kind of academic question because it assumes a whole load of political things as empirically true, and they're not. Um, I wanted to ask, answer on the um, specific question about the United States. Uh, the, 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 that, the, the index, the, only, uh, the Financial Secrecy Index, it was a ranking based upon... Um, uh, measure of secrecy and, and the size of basically countries put in place secrecy in the hope of attracting financial capital. Um, they put in place all sorts of other things as well in the hope of 
attracting financial capital, but the secrecy enables people from elsewhere to... to uh, enables you to have an affair. Yes. Yeah. Um, to do what they're not, not, not able to do at home, yes, as Morris puts it. Something have elsewhere, affair. yeah. But, uh, so that's, that's how the, the, the United States ranked itself as a tax haven, but there are many other ways of looking at it. Um, if you look at the tax side of things and financial flows being attracted into the United States that are enabling citizens to avoid taxes, um, leaving the, side, the related po point about secrecy aside, you will also find that the United States looms very large um, as a tax haven. So it, it is, we are talking about the United States um, uh, as a country, Delaware. as a jurisdiction. Delaware, Delaware was, a, in, in the creation of this, of the Financial Secrecy Index, was, a, was, was Delaware is a jurisdiction, along with other um, states in the United States, that provide very strong forms of particularly corporate secrecy, and that was Delaware was used as the, uh, the measuring stick for the secrecy um, for the United States in, in the latest index. Um, so that's, that's, how, that's how it's measured. We have to understand that tax havens, big economies can be tax havens. The United States has a whole range of tax haven characteristics involving secrecy tax and other things that happen at a state level and happen at a, at a national level. And we have to understand that, that we're not just talking about small islands. Um, oh, they but small islands, of course, uh, yes, they're, you know, they're very important in the city. We always have to remember that the city is a small island within the United Kingdom that has kind of carved itself out as a very separate part-in, part-out jurisdiction in, in, in this country. One more question? Okay. One more question? Yeah. On, on the left. Or can you just wait for the microphone to, to come over? Hi, I'm Paulina Emanuel. I'm a Labour Party member and a bit of a campaigner as well. Anyway, um, really random and very stupid question, I think, is, is about to come up. Um, do you think it's possible to believe in the free market economy, but at the same time in social justice? Just, I'm well, just wondering what your thoughts are on that, because I have a lot of people, who, uh, friends rather, who argue with me and, you know, who, well, friends who work in the financial services sector, for example, who say, yes, I do believe in that, and, you know, they give all these various reasons, and they always hound me for sort of preaching to them, if you like, because obviously they're not Labour, uh, well, my friends aren't, anyway, who are, you know, okay. um, working in the banking sector. Yeah. Yes, I don't work I, in the bank sector, obviously. Okay. First of all, I don't know why you think that's a stupid question, that's a very good question. Oh, um, sorry, just one more quick yeah. thing I was going to add to that. Um, I'm also, I've also been told that I'm a bit of a hypocrite, and I'll explain, <coughs> because my background is actually one of, if you like, um, well, parents who are into free market <laughs> sort of beliefs, and, well, social justice supposedly as well. Okay, basically Thank that's you. that. <laughs> I'm not say <laughs> well, what I've been talking about, tax havens, if you're talking about um, social justice, tax and, and, and can free markets lead to social justice? What tax havens do is corrupt free markets. They are distorting free markets. So we're not, we haven't got free markets. Offshore finance, it is giving, for example, multinational corporations can cut their tax bills by going off to tax havens and doing, playing certain games that may be le legal or illegal or in some, some sort of gray area. But they reduce their tax bills. Other corporations, other companies that try to compete with them, a lot of the small companies you'll see on your high street going out of business, one of the important reasons for that is that they cannot compete on this completely mm -hmm. unproductive, wasteful activity of tax avoidance. 
Um, so you have this, this again, this non-level playing field. This is not free markets. Mm. This is distorted markets. Um, and so that, so the question of whether genuinely free markets can lead to social justice, I think, is a, is a separate question. But from from my offshore perspective, I think that's. Uh, that's one of the great. This is one of the great fault lines in globalization. Offshore, the offshore system. It has it has created a, a completely distorted, distorted and completely corrupted um, set of markets. Yeah, and as a late fellow Labour Party member, um, what I would say is, is just just think it like this. Free markets, social justice. We're right back to the market and the state. And what we've lost completely is any sense of a democratic society and the institutions of a democratic society. So what I would say is, is I'm a nutcase in favour of markets. I love to see businesses grow. I like to see innovation. I love, I love, I'm from a small business background and I really honour that. But what you have, but there's a difference between running a real business and running a financial business. Financial business sort of accumulates the profits of the real businesses and then speculates on them and then makes you pay tax to bail them out when they get it wrong. We've just got to limit the power of financial capital, really boost the productive capital. That needs effective, because what does capital do? It, it, it goes where the rates of returns are highest. So we need regional banks, we need stable, calm business partnerships that can actually grow a real economy. That has to be partnered with democracy as well as justice. So all I do is say the trade-off is not between markets and justice. There has to be a renewal of a relationship between society, markets and the state in which democratic association plays a fundamental role. I'm afraid. Can I just ask one simple question, please? Very briefly, because we Very have run briefly. over time. Okay. <clears throat> the central issue through all this that you're talking about is justice and universal justice. And I just want to give you an example of the city of London uh, from a friend of mine from Germany who told me that her, a, a friend of hers from Germany of a German bank was offered a job in one of the big banks here. He was recruiting. And the first thing they said to him when he arrived, I think his salary was in the sort of um, 70 to 80,000 pounds per annum. And they said to him, uh, uh, look old chap, um, uh, I don't know what, I think it's different there in Germany, but we can pay your wages into an offshore tax haven and you won't have to pay anywhere near as much tax. Well, compared to he was absolutely bold over Basically, compared to Germany, we are an offshore tax haven. That's the reality of that relationship. But as that well. would have been an even further one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. That stuff happens, with you on that happens all the time, yeah. Anyway, I think we have to yeah. wrap up. I mean, I'm happy to carry on. But no, 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 we no, 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 no. Well, we, we, we do have our... We can, uh, yes, time. yes. But you want to carry on? No, 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 no. Well, thank you very much for coming. I, I know that there are a number of people who would have liked the, the opportunity to ask questions, but we have gone over our, our time already. Uh, Nicholas Jackson will be signing copies of his book afterwards for anyone who is interested. 
if you are interested in getting it signed, there are copies for sale just outside. He will be inside. Uh, the next lecture from the LSE Law Department will be on the 23rd of February when we move from islands to bridges. The topic is Building Bridges Across Financial Communities with Iqbal Khan of Fajr Capital. Please join me in thanking our speakers for a wonderful <laughs>